Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Be covering Joshua 13 through 21 today. Uh, that may sound like a bad joke, but it's not. Um, we will not read the whole thing together, um, but we will talk it through a little bit and work through the content, and then we'll work through the introduction to understand how to approach chapter 13 through 21. So if you came today, um, maybe for the first time, I get the wonderful privilege to you of, of introducing you to one of the most boring parts of Joshua, but that doesn't mean it's less, any less important. Uh, what I mean in boring, obviously, is when we come to it, a lot of times we get to this stage and we're looking forward to get past it because there's so many names and so many territories and lots of stuff that wants to make us skip forward. So it's my job to make sure that we take a look at this and understand it rightly because it's certainly God's word and it's important for us. Today, we'll see as the people are called into a new stage of obedience. Still obedience, but it's a different stage, a different task to do. Uh, the core task is still actually the same, to trust Yahweh and to obey his word. This is still based on the same promises that God himself would give success because he is faithful, because he is true, and because of his incredible character. And so obedience to their covenant-keeping Lord will bring them success and prosperity in this land. And by that grace, he will then fulfill every one of his promises. The task here has been completed at the first half, 1 through 12. We've seen this happen. The last time we were together, we looked and saw that the whole land was taken. Joshua eleven twenty three. it says that Joshua had taken the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses. The book of Joshua really then, what it does, he is taking seriously the task that Moses gives to the people in Deuteronomy 1. Now, if you're like me, you probably don't remember exactly what happened in Deuteronomy 1, Back there, what we're talking about in verses 6 through 8, Moses gives the commands to the people that they are to journey to the promised land, to Canaan. And there they are to receive the promised land, the one that the Lord was giving to them. That which was to be that they were to take possession of, actively going in and taking it as their inheritance. And this is important because this is the land that was sworn to them by their forefathers. I mean, sworn to them by God. God gave it to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He swore that he would give this to them. So this is a very important piece that all of Joshua is showing us that we are going to move in and actually have this land. So we approach Joshua chapter 1, Moses dies, and Joshua succeeds him as his leader, as Israel's leader. And we watch as the Lord speaks to Joshua and gives him the enormous and daunting task of inheriting the land, or possessing the land, or taking the land of Canaan. We learn from the very beginning that this was a, an incredibly difficult task. This was not one that they were measuring up to. They didn't have the resources, they didn't have the right tools. They were not equal to the task of actually taking this land. They were, in some senses, pathetic slaves from Egypt, wandering around the desert, and now they're to come to this promised land and take it. We learned that this is going to be an extremely difficult task. And thus, he said right at the beginning, do not be afraid. 
Do not be dismayed. I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The truth is, Joshua knew this. Joshua knew that there was a problem here. He knew that he was not equal to task, and probably Israel did as well. And thus, when we came first to Joshua 1, 1 through 9, that preamble, that introduction to the whole book, we understood that that laid the foundation for every other piece that would come in the book of Joshua. So each situation that we behold, or each command that Yahweh gives to them, it makes sense in light of the first nine verses, helping us understand that God is the one that will give this to them. And he commands them to follow along. And since it's the case, they are to observe, they are to study, they are to treasure, and they are to obey each detail of God's commands. Or as we also know, the law of Moses, as he gave it to the people through Moses, as God did. Yahweh tells them that this is the only way to accomplish the task that he's giving them. Otherwise, they will surely fail. But if they will listen to him, and they will listen to his word, and observe it carefully, they will have success. Their way will be prosperous. And so we see from the outset that this is what's going on here. He's telling them that this is the only way to do it. The only way that they will be able to overcome the Canaanites and inherit the land is by obedience to their covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. So, since that's the case, they're to take this land only in obedience to God. We watched as Israel did this over the last 12 chapters. We watched them take this command seriously, each one that Moses had given them. They did not lean on their own understanding, but rather instead acknowledged God at each step of the way and did exactly as he said, trusting that it could only be through his divine gifting that they would receive the land of Canaan as their possession. Their obedience, get this, their obedience, although imperfect, Right? It's not, not perfect obedience, but their obedience was a proper response to the redeeming love that Yahweh had showered on them in Egypt and at Sinai when he made them his. God's electing love took Israel and made Israel his own. And now as they obey and as they respond, it is the proper response of obedience that we see. They experienced this wonderful electing love and responded by trusting and obeying. If you remember Joshua, we'll go back, let me just highlight a few things. They trusted God and walked into the Jordan River, knowing that he said that he would open it up for them. They trusted God and they circumcised the sons of Israel. Even though they had, in the most dangerous spot possible, they would go into the land and do this to all their soldiers. They trusted God and silently, strangely, encircled Jericho over and over again. Pretty strange uh, way to do this, way to war wage warfare. They trusted God and identified and killed Achan and his household. Extremely difficult thing to do. They trusted God and marched on Ai a second time, trusting that God would give them victory, even though I had seen this partial defeat. They trusted God and asked him to cause the sun to stand still. They trusted God and warred against all of the southern peoples. And then they trusted God and attacked this northern coalition. A few weeks ago we saw this. This huge amount of people, these soldiers that were as many as the sands of the seashore, waging war against them, trusting that every human advantage that they had, chariots, numbers, horses, smarts, unity, that God could overcome all of that. And he shows himself to be true. They trusted God and obeyed him over and over and over again. And that's what we've been walking through these last few weeks, well, actually these last few months, watching God be true to his word. And as Israel was willing to obey, he gave them success. 
The results were staggering. I mean, I'll repeat 11.23 again. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Now, this is where we left off last. Joshua and Israel obeyed the divine command to conquer the land and devote each city to destruction and leave nothing that breathed. And they have been very, very successful. They have left an enormous vacuum of power because they have destroyed nation after nation. They have brought God's judgment on these wicked people. They had driven them out of the land and removed them from power. I want to take a moment and remind you, you got to remember this, what they were doing here is not an occupation. They were not dropping off settlers here in each place and there in that place. Instead, the first 12 chapters of Joshua describe an initial offensive military strike that broke the backbone of power in Canaan. That they took that authority away from them. The leadership is destroyed. The majority populations have been destroyed. But Israel has not occupied it yet. In chapter 12, we stop and we gawked as we saw the impressive record both of Moses and of Joshua showing in one section that it's not actually Joseph, Joshua or Moses it's actually God who's the one that gave all of these nations into their hands. But as we come to chapter 13, we come to a brand new section. There's kind of a dividing line right here between 12 and 13. The major national war involving all of the tribes gathering to fight against the Canaanites, they, they, that was over. But we're only halfway through the book of Joshua. There's 24 chapters in Joshua. So what's happening next? What's going on here? Our narrator, if you can get to this, our narrator is moving us into a new section, a long section, a very detailed section, uh, a section, if we're honest, we'd probably consider boring. <laughs> In chapters 13 through 21, Joshua is dividing up this land to the Can of Canaan to the people of Israel. And if we're all honest, you're probably like me a little bit here. This is kind of like reading genealogies. Once you get to it and you realize you're seeing a bunch of names, you're like, okay, where's the bottom of this? And where does the story pick back up again? I mean, I know I'm supposed to read it and I'll do my best, but like, okay, how does this all work together? I'm not quite sure. Bunch of names, skim down. Okay, that's where it starts again. Am I alone in this? <laughs> Pray for me, brothers. I'll, I'll do my best here. Um, if we're honest, this is not the most thrilling reading. We know that. It's not as though we read one section of this and we're like, oh, praise the Lord, I'm ready to go out and do something. It, it's difficult to understand why this would be here. If all of God's word, though, is true, and if all of it's important, then we all recognize this is difficult, but then we have this kind of nagging question, then why is it important? I'm, I'm curious, why would God put this here? Why would it be written down for us? Is it simply just history? Is it just the facts written down for us? Is that all that this serves for? That's why we are going to try to do this over the next, today and over the next three weeks. Take a look at 13 through 21 and understand why Joshua recorded all of this detail. So let's begin. We're going to look at uh, an outline here of this section because if you're like me, again, you're reading along in chapter 13, you're there. Chapter 14, you're going strong. Chapter 15, you're starting to wane and you're not really sure where you're going and you get lost in the whole thing. I think this will be helpful to you. So what we're going to do is look at a, an outline of chapter 13 through 21. Think of it as a big chunk. The first thing we see is an introduction. 
This is chapter 13, 1 through 7. This is helping us understand. There's also going to be a conclusion at the end. So it's all sectioned off. In chapter 13, 1 through 7, you have this introduction where Yahweh gives them perspective. He helps them understand there is still a lot of land to possess here. In this introduction, he promises them that he will drive out the Canaanites and that he commands Israel to divide the land and allot the tribes, allot the, the land to the tribes. The rest of this section is about Joshua and Israel and how they did that. So this is what it looks like. You've got tribal allotments, and then you've got these other things, designation of special cities. The last thing, of course, is then the, the, at the other end is the conclusion. This is important. The entire thing is made up of these two things, basically. You have tribal allotments, the whole land being divvied out between them, and then these special cities, which are cities like the cities of Levi, they would give specifically our pasture lands to them, or cities of refuge. We'll get to that. They accomplished these two tasks, though, uh, in two major ways. They did by tribal allotments, and again, these special cities, but you can see how it broke down even a little bit more. The importance here is to see that not only the tribal allotments just random, they gave it out to all of them, they're split up. The first one is the east of Jordan, and the second we have the west of Jordan. Now, east of Jordan, we actually already know if we read Deuteronomy. It's already been given to the people, Reuben, Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh. That's their, we talked about this early on as well, that's their possession. But what still needs to happen is actually the west side of Jordan. That will be done by Joshua. That is what God is commanding him to do, to allot the rest of the land to these people. Now, you'll take a look there. East of Jordan, first of all, we already know about it. The second, it's very small. But look at the west of Jordan. Chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. A lot of information there. That's the rest of these different tribes. The reason being is they're going to split up into two major categories. Lands of Judah and Joseph. That's 14 through 17. And then the lands that are remaining for the seven tribes that are left over. The reason I'm putting this out here is so that you and I can consider this not just as blank stare reading where we just got to get through it. There's a structure here. And it's hard for us as readers to see all this structure from sitting down and reading 13 to 21. That's a lot to take in. This will help us, though, see these are divvied out on purpose. There's something going on here. And as we walk through it, we'll see that these designations are important. At the end, he has a conclusion showing all of this has come true and that the promise of God have been fulfilled, that Israel has followed all of God's words and they have been allowed to take this land. It's been divided then and allotted between these different tribes. In the midst of all this, we have both good and bad examples of what it meant to take and inherit the land. Now, I'm going to take this off. You can come see it later if you want to, but this will give you a little, little idea of what's going on. When we think of inheriting the land, we might think of this as someone maybe writing a will and that the recipients of the inheritance, they do a few legal things, but then they passively accept the will or the, the inheritance, uh, the money, the goods. You know, if they have a good living trust or a, a will prepared, it should be a pretty simple transfer. That is not what's going on here. We're talking about an active possession of this inheritance. We will learn that this is not what the people of Israel are experiencing, what we would think of as a will. We rightly use the words inheritance, possession, God's gifting this to them, but these gifts came only to those who trusted and obeyed their Lord, Yahweh. The inheritance process is now about to get underway. And even though uh, it may seem to us like it's just a necessary historical record, don't be fooled. This is a powerful section that is actually meant to teach us 
and help us understand both ourselves and also God's ways. Today we are going to simply take a moment and look at chapter 13 and look at the first seven verses. So go ahead and open your Bible. Let's look at chapter 13, 1 through 7 as I read. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mira that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrephoth Mayim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot land to Israel for inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land for inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. All right, so what a way to kick it off. <laughs> this is what he says. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, as though to rub it in, you are old and advanced in years. I mean, it, it's kind of funny for us. It's like, why was this done this way? Was he just trying to rub it in? Joshua got a lot of gray hair. Like, what's his purpose here? Actually, it's not just silly. It's important. It reminds us, because we've seen something like this before. This is not accidental or making a jab. Let me read Joshua 1, 1, and 2 and see if you pick up on it. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. So you have the same idea. The narrator states the obvious, Moses, the servant of the Lord, is dead. And then God states it again, Moses, my servant, is dead. But God isn't rubbing it in or making a joke. He's showing us the parallel between these leaders and their situation, what's going on here. Between Joshua 13, where we're at now, and all the way back to Joshua 1. He is showing us a scenario that we've seen before. In Joshua 1, it was this incredible leader, Moses, who was old and eventually died. Here in chapter 13, it is Joshua who is now old and getting ready to die. He is showing us a recognition kind of of the end of a season of life. He knows that this is drawing close to the end for Joshua. But the problem is, the task isn't complete. It's not over. Joshua is coming to the end of his time as leader, but it's not complete. It's quite the opposite. The Lord makes it clear that despite the excellent leadership of Joshua, and he gives him props throughout this text, he's done well, he's been faithful, despite his excellent leadership, Despite all of his victories, despite his covenant faithfulness in leading them properly, the task was not finished. The rest of the verse says, and there remains very much land to possess. In verses 2 through the beginning of verse 6, you're going to see a list, one of those lists that we get through. We have to struggle through to understand all the names and try to put it all together. But there's, they're all showing one thing. Israel was not finished with the conquest. And just so you and I have a good idea of what that looked like, let me show you a map. So this is Israel. If you can see it, all that yellowish part in the middle is where they stormed in, and this is where they're ready to occupy, where they had taken over. You can see on the side there next to the Mediterranean Sea, this big green strip. 
and then these a couple little juts in these little pieces of green around the sea and the bottom sea there. These are all areas that if they're not yellow, it means that that was not conquered yet. So all these areas represent the peoples that we just read about from two through six. Again, I remind you, when they had this military strike, the purpose was not to completely kill every single person in the entire land. It was to break the backbone of power of Canaan and thus be able to do long-term completely rid the land of the Canaanites. This is what it looked like, though. God himself, it seems contradictory, has told us this, and we'll, we'll go into this a little bit later on as we continue on. But it's important for us to see this is where they're at. The task has not been completed. They're not done all the way. They have a few more things to possess. In verses 2 through 6, you'll see this happening, and this is the major point that God is trying to make. The war has been fought. The battles have been won, but the conquest is not over. The conquest will now take a very different form. Things will change. The lands that I had promised to you, Israel, now you must go in and divide and allot between your tribes. We're immediately wondering, though, if, if we're going to see some sort of a new leader emerge. It's kind of what we want to see since that's what we saw with Moses. Or if maybe he's just going to say, Moses, or Joshua, I want you to get your troops back together and go out and conquer all these squirrely little, these little cities and make sure we get them under control so you can start exterminating again. But that's not what he does. Instead, look at the rest of verse 6. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrephoth, Miami, even the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Instead of going back to the battlefields to round up all these nations, the Lord says he will do the possessing for Israel. He himself, there's emphasis there. The word that you see in verse 1 is the same root word that we're going to find in verse 6. So in your English translation, it's going to look like totally different words. But track me for a minute. In verse 1, you'll see that there will still be much land to possess. Now look at down verse 6. The Lord himself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Same root word. In other words, what he is saying, the thing that you're not finished with, you haven't possessed, I myself will do that job for you. God is saying there's still much to possess, but I myself will possess it for you. In other words, God is saying, remember who is the divine warrior. Remember who really gives the land. Remember who it is who will never leave you or forsake you. Remember that this is all about me and my wonderful acts and my glory. It is God and God alone and will not share his glory with another. It's his. And all these things can be experienced and all these wonders for his people only through the divine gifting of Yahweh. And so we, 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 we understand this and we rightly sit back and say, hallelujah, and praise be to God. He's awesome. He's the one that's going to do this. He does everything for us and more. We read along and we're so thankful that God is going before Israel to do this and to give them victory. But we kind of still wonder, how will he do this? What does he mean, I will go before you and drive them out? The text doesn't exactly tell us exactly how it's going to look. That's not its focus. He promises he will surely possess the land for them, that he will drive out the Canaanites without missing a beat then. He goes right into a command. Notice that. The next thing that he tells them is verse 6. I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and a half tribe of Manasseh. That's your task. That's what you're to do now. 
I'm going to do this, don't worry, but now you need to do this. Joshua, I know you're almost dead, and that's okay, and there's still a lot of work to do, a lot of inheriting to be done. Don't worry. I myself will do that. But before you die, you must allot the rest of this land to the tribes of Israel. Just like Joshua 1, the Lord gives a promise alongside of his command. He understands just how important it is for his people to know it's not blank obedience that doesn't mean anything. It rests. Their obedience comes from a divine trust in the one who knows all things and will have their best interest. Only then can they truly trust and then obey him. We saw earlier that the promises of God, rightly taken and believed, will always lead to our proper action, or we could say our obedience. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Blank obedience, it doesn't mean anything. Not trusting the one, it doesn't mean anything. But when you trust the one who holds all things and has promised to do what he says he's going to do, to give the land, then you can take these steps forward. Joshua, he does this. He has continued on in his task. And in Joshua 1, God told Joshua to go over the Jordan, to take the land. But he also said, back here, I will be with you. So this, what we're seeing in chapter 13 is a recapitulation, a redoing of what we already saw in chapter one. We are seeing them, this is a new task, but you're doing by the same exact means. I will do it for you. You must now trust and obey me. He said, I will not leave you or forsake you. I am giving you this land. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. That's nice. I will make you prosperous and give you success. He gives Joshua and the people of Israel a promise but then he calls them to action, to do something about it. This is not a new theme in the book of Joshua, like we've talked about before. His promises always drive us to obedience, or they should. If we trust him and believe these promises, they will bolster our faith. His promises remind us of his great love. His promises remind us of his great power. His promises remind us that he will never leave us, and that he is completely faithful. And because of these precious promises, it spurs us on to act, to obey, even though it seems crazy, even though the world around us thinks that we're fools. In reality, the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And it's only through him that we know how to rightly do this and trust him. His promises remind us all these different things, and we know this, he can be trusted. And since he can be trusted, we are then called to obey. For Joshua and the nation of Israel, this meant that they needed to go through the important and tedious to us task of taking this land and allotting it out to the different tribes. Again, that seems just to be a historical record to us, but okay, that's what we need to do. That's what our next stage of this is supposed to be. What we're about to see then is part two of how to conquer the land of Canaan God's way. If I was doing it, I don't think I would do it exactly this way, but this is exactly how he tells them to do it. And so as they listen, the best thing for them to do is obey. He's already told them this. Part one is straightforward. It's warfare. It's simple in that regard. Move forward. It was the tribes united to fight against the Canaanite powers. But part two seems very different. How will God possess the rest of the land? How will he drive them out before them? What we know from the next few chapters, if you start reading forward and understand, the tribal allotments that are given out overlap much of the land that is still unconquered. What that means is people will be going into their allotment 
and the task is not finished. And so we're seeing, we know that God is telling his people to hand the responsibility from corporate Israel as a big war machine to the individual tribes to go and occupy this land and to now do the rest of the job that God told them to do. It was their responsibility to finish the task of the conquest as individual tribes. Yes, they would still have the same common enemy and the same common goal to rid the land of the Canaanites, but through the allotments, we watch as God now gives the task of extermination and occupation into the hands of each tribe. It will be on each of them then to obey. Almost as if they were gathered together and they obeyed as one, but as they scattered, they also needed to obey. It was just as important as they scattered to do the things that they had learned to do and to keep God's commandment and to obey every part of it and to observe it and to be careful to do the words of the Lord. This was now on each of them. They will need to trust Yahweh. They will need to seek him and observe all of his commands. They will need to initiate new battles to conquer all the lands that God had given to them. They will need to remain faithful to each of the commands that God had given to love Moses. And if they do, they will have success. The pattern has been set already. We already saw this from Joshua 1 to 12. We saw him give over and over again, say, do this and trust me and obey, and he comes through. He does it over and over again. What God said in chapter 1 has already proven to be true. They have obeyed the commands of God, and they have prosperity through victory in the land of Canaan. He has been with them, and they have succeeded. So the task in front of them will look very different but it calls them to do the same core thing, to trust Yahweh and therefore to obey. Now the question for us, how does this affect us? I've got two thoughts on this. Number one, let's take into consideration the promise of God to his people. Consider what it means that God himself said, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. May I remind you that our God never leaves us or forsakes us and that he will do the work that he promised to do. It is our Lord who gives us success. It's no different for us, guys. The same that is true for Joshua here is the same for us. Our victory, our success, our prosperity, our joy has all been a gift from God himself. And so what we see here is the Lord will not give his glory over to another. It is his Chapters 1 through 12 declared that Yahweh, the divine warrior, was the one who won the battle. It was his. It wasn't Joshua. Over and over again, it's Joshua obeying the word of the Lord. Chapters 13 through 24 aren't going to sing a new tune. It's going to be the same thing that we learned. To trust God is the only way to have success. Now, for you and me, you know, it, it, for you and me, it, it was never a result of us uh, getting our life together in the right way of us getting the right job, of us doing the right tasks at home, of us saving the money the correct way, of us telling and teaching our children the right. We need to get that out of our minds and doing all the right things. Any success or prosperity that you have is a good grace from God. Do not miss that. It is God's gracious hand to go before you and prepare your way for success. Now, as Jordan pointed out this morning, that success may not look like the same success of the world. But we're talking about true success before God. That is all of his doing. And so we must recognize that it's God's constant hand of provision and guiding. Sometimes I think that uh, we divorce our obedience 
from trust in God. If we do that, I want you to recognize that that's sin. You doing these tasks obediently, seemingly, without trusting God, become filthy rags. They're an affront to God's righteousness. The only way we can ever do what is right is by his grace. And the shed blood of Jesus Christ has then imputed his righteousness to our account. And therefore, the reason we can do good at all is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we hold tightly to Christ. That's why we sing of him. We have no other good. All we have then is Christ. But if this is true, then we actually have confidence in the one who said to us, I will go before you. And we realize, like Paul said, it's abundantly clear when he reminds us in Ephesians 2 that the gift of God is that, a gift. So there is no chance of us boasting. You can't say, I made the right decisions. You know, I really, you know, I trusted as hard as I could and I, I got here. It is God's gracious gift to give us Christ. Even faith itself is a gift from God. The passage encourages us then to humility and to trust this God who will go before us. So that's the first thing. The second thing is a little bit different, a little more nuanced. There are times in our life that we are called to new stages of obedience. There are major life events that happen uh, that change through the way that we do our life, whether it's having children or getting married or changing jobs or perhaps an accident that changes the way that we can do things. Israel was about to change from heavy warfare to occupation. Now consider... Some of them, especially, this sounded great. They were excited about occupying. But then there are the warriors who see this as a major step down. Like, like they're, they're like, oh, I got to go back and do the farm thing and take care of the kids and work all this. And like, it seems like this warfare was so much more glorious and dramatic and important. And now we have a second stage where it seems a lot more mundane, a lot more normal. And yet, God comes to them and gives them a promise of his goodness and calls them to obedience. The same is true for us. In our lives, we notice these shifts sometimes. There are seasons where obedience seems really important. And the things that we do seems like if, only, if God is in this and I obey, then he will get glory and it will be awesome. And those are wonderful times. But there are also times um, that we know it's more like mundane normal, regular obedience in the day-to-day -day stuff. Um, you know, we, it's kind of almost meager and menial obedience. Uh, but there are other times here that God calls us, again, there's times like this is just seeming not, not so glamorous. Perhaps it's your job. Maybe the job that you do week in, week out is not that way, is not once what it was. You thought you were going to be here, and you're doing something very different. It seems like you're not making any headway at all for the cause of Christ or in the eyes of the world's success at all. Maybe it's that. You work a job that seems small and insignificant to the cause of Christ, and you find yourself wondering how important it is to obey in each of these moments. You know that obedience is important. You get that. But it's hard to see that this is important as the other things were. Or perhaps it's a task of staying home as a mom or dad. If you're, you're the task of parenting, the task of domestic life, constantly loving and disciplining your children with grace, dressing children, undressing children, cleaning clothes, making food, cleaning up food, cleaning up things that come from food. I mean, these tasks seem so menial and so laborious and so sometimes meaningless. 
And yet, we remember that God is the one who has given each of those changes in your life. If we truly believe all of our theology, that he's in sovereign control of everything, each one of those changes is just as important. And each time that you are to obey is just as important that you rely on God and his word. Because if you do, you are in line with him. And he, in the menial, gives success, gives prosperity, gives true joy in him. So I just want to remind you, I, I don't care what stage you are at. There are stages as we grow older, as we will see people who are bedridden. Man, what a, it seems so, to the world, what a terrible stage of life where you sit there and it seems like nothing happens. Who is in control? Who says, trust me? Who says, love me? The one who holds you in his hand, the one who has promised these things, that you will have prosperity and good grace by trusting and knowing me. So brothers and sisters, may I remind you, no matter what stage you are in, however seemingly insignificant what you do is, obey, trust him. The same thing that we've seen from the beginning of this book. It's just as important because it's exactly what God gave to you. We must hear God, trust him, and then act. We must obey. When we hear the command of Israel from God to allot the territory, we ought to hear also then of our own obedience to God, whatever that is that God has given for us to do. I don't care if you like it or not. Let us trust him in the midst of all that struggle. So I'll end with this. Trust him and obey him. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your, your grace. Man, it's overwhelming. You would save a wretch like me. Lord, we thank you for your great grace in Jesus Christ who has given his life so that you would not pour out your judgment and your wrath on me. You have saved your church, the body of Jesus Christ, by pouring your wrath out on Christ. It is overwhelming and wonderful. We ask that we would respond to these things, even though they may seem as lesser obediences and less important, with great care and faith, given by you and ready for us to obey. Lord, teach us to trust you. Teach us to obey you, Lord. We need you so badly. We give you honor and praise in our weakness and ask for you to continue to work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.